Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded in two sessions. The most recent took place just a few days ago on January 14th in reaction to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. But the previous session was all the way back on November 30th. It is the first part of a small series we'll be doing on the podcast on Reconstruction, the period immediately following the Civil War in which the Confederate South was brought back into the fold and millions of formerly enslaved people began to make their way in a new America. While Reconstruction is perhaps less well-known to most Americans than slavery or Jim Crow or the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, its impact has nevertheless continued to be felt in our politics and society, especially when it comes to racial inequality. For this series, we'll be talking with historian Dee Dee Miller about the legacies Reconstruction has left us when it comes to voting, criminal justice, housing, and education. In this first installment of our series, we'll be talking about voting, about Black Americans' political engagement in the years following the Civil War, about the mounting violence that resulted in Black disenfranchisement, and about the vestiges of disenfranchisement that we continue to see today. And lastly, in that more recent conversation, which I mentioned a moment ago, we'll discuss the Wilmington coup of 1898. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, many have drawn a comparison with Wilmington, the only known coup in the history of the United States. Dee Dee's going to help us understand what happened back then, and what parallels we might find between it and what's happening now. Dee Dee Miller is a wife, a mother of two, a historian, and a former teacher. She holds an M.A. in history and specializes in 18th and 19th century transatlantic slavery and slave revolutions, African-American history, and black political identity. Dee Dee is a black woman and convert to Catholicism who has a deep love for her community and her faith. She is a founding member and president of Catholics United for Black Lives and is deeply invested in using the principles of Catholic social teaching to address the racial divide in America. Dee Dee seeks balance and nuance in everything, and she believes strongly in living and advocating for a consistent life ethic that defends the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death, and everything in between. Dee Dee loves having conversations about religion and politics, and she enjoys gardening, knitting, sewing, and spending time with her amazing husband and two beautiful boys. I hope you find our conversation enlightening. All right. Hello, Dee Dee. Hi, Julie. How are you? Good. I'm so glad you could come onto the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So could you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, uh, my name is Dee Dee, and I am trained as a historian. I'm a former teacher turned stay-at-home mom to two beautiful boys, and I am presently um, the co-founder and president of Catholic United for Black Lives. That is wonderful. I have really enjoyed following that organization, and I sure hope 
any of the podcast listeners who haven't heard of it will check it out. We'll provide a link to it in the show notes so you can go check it out. Um, Dee Dee is here today to talk about Reconstruction, the period immediately following the Civil War. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I have been thinking so much about how different periods of our history sort of remain with us in a way that we don't really recognize. Like the um, the issues that we deal with today can be traced back in many ways to previous points in our history. And I feel like a lot of people, they think about um, the Civil War. They think about slavery. They think about the revolution. They may think about Jim Crow. They may think about, you know, the world wars. But I just don't feel like people think a whole lot about Reconstruction or they don't talk a whole lot about it. And I think that there's a lot that happened then that we see traces of today. And I was hoping, Dee Dee, that you could explain a bit about that period and make a connection as to from that period to today. So could you start off just by broadly telling us when Reconstruction was, what it was, in, in sort of the broadest sense? Sure, no problem. Um, so the American Civil War lasted from 1861 to 1865, and it ushered in um, massive changes to American society, politics, and economics. And so the Reconstruction period is the period that follows immediately after the war. It lasts roughly from 1865 to 1877. And this is sort of uh, America's way of trying to piece itself back together again after being ripped apart by war. Mm. I, I think we've all heard the stories of how devastated the South was, both in terms of its geography and also in terms of its population and its institutions in particular the end of slavery, um, but also in the North, um, there were many changes and struggles there with um, changeovers in industry and also resentments from the South and vice versa. And so it was a period where our government hoped to be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, I think you could say that it was relatively successful, but in a lot of ways, the Reconstruction period uh, left a lot wanting. Um, mm -hmm. So immediately after the end of the war, uh, you had to figure out sort of how you put everything back together again. And there were a variety of, of ideas about what to do. Um, President Lincoln had his 10% plan, which was basically this idea that as soon as 10% um, of a state's uh, governing officials uh, basically pledge their allegiance to the United States, then that state could start to form new governments. But uh, the Congress was not necessarily in agreement with that plan. And then, of course, we know that Lincoln was uh, assassinated also in 1865. Mm -hmm. So under Johnson, then, we have a period that, we're, that we would call presidential reconstruction, which lasts from about 1865 to 1867. And Johnson's approach um, was basically 
a free-for-all. Basically, Johnson said that um, he issued pardons on sort of a grand scale. And he basically said, so long as you abolish, um, abolish slavery, disavow secession, and agree to do something about your debt, then you can be admitted back to the union. Right. And just, just to refresh, Johnson was actually a Southerner and a Democrat, right? Even though he was vice president to a Republican president. Is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was very, he was very friendly to um, the, the Southern cause. Yeah. Right. I just think it's, it's so funny for us to think of these days, like having a vice president from a different party. And especially right. when you're talking about um, the Civil War, you know, when for the most part, the, um, the secessionists were Democrats and the president of the union was a Republican. It's interesting to think that the vice president under him was a Democrat. It's mm-hmm. just interesting to me. Yes, it is. I, I don't. I don't think that we can imagine something like that happening now, especially um, how divided our government is yeah. at present. But yeah, yeah, it's like otherworldly almost. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, so I was just I was just wrapping up presidential reconstruction, which mm-hmm. is basically pardons on a grand scale. Um, so one thing that is, is important in terms of the rest of the conversation about reconstruction and effects now is that this era of of presidential reconstruction, which was fairly lax, ushered in, in the South, a slew of black codes. And black codes were basically laws that were designed to place limits on the freedom of this this newly um, ex-slave population. So it did things like require folks to work and set in uh, and encode certain morality clauses so it sort of lays the foundation for what we would come to know as Jim Crow uh, mm-hmm. later on in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of backlash to Johnson and his policies. And so in 1866, we see the rise of a Republican rebellion. And so from about 1866 to about 1877, so basically to the end of Reconstruction, you have this radical reconstruction period. And it's during this period that we see uh, in a lot more activity from federal troops in the South. We see the Freedmen's Bureau. We see a civil rights bill. The 14th and 15th Amendments also come under, under the radical um, construction period. So it's basically that the moment when uh, Congress is trying to ensure um, that at least some of its goals of reuniting the country and integrating this newly free population um, can sort of be achieved to varying mm-hmm. degrees of, of success. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, I think, well, so Johnson was impeached and a big part of his impeachment was his butting heads with Congress, essentially, over, I think, some of these measures. Exactly. Yes. In particular, the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau and the Civil Rights Bill, he vetoed. And so um, these were sort of the first instances of a major uh, overturn of a presidential veto. Uh, And it sort of forever soured the relationship between Congress and Johnson. Uh, Mm -hmm. He 
he was not a fan of any of the more uh, radical measures of trying to provide for the needs of the formerly enslaved population. Uh, and so he resisted Congress at every turn. They viewed him as an obstructionist. And mm-hmm. so um, eventually we get to a fever pitch where they try to impeach him. Mm-hmm. Well, they do impeach him. Right. Impeached, but not removed by just exactly. one vote in the Senate, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Held on barely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now that we have the basic overview, we decided we'd talk about three major elements of the Reconstruction period that we see echoes of today, um, and the three being voting, criminal justice, and housing. So I was hoping that you could start us off by talking about voting. You know, it's interesting to think of um, freed freed peoples who are suddenly able to vote for the first time and have some real agency and to hopefully, you know, try to have a say in the governance of their country. So how soon after the Civil War did uh, previously enslaved peoples get the right to vote? And did they hold on to that right for very long in practicality? Mm. Yeah, so the the ex-slave population, uh, they, as quickly as they could could see fit, um, started to find their way into public office, um, especially once we have um, sort of the the Freedmen's Bureau and Civil Rights Bill. We see even more Black people pouring into office. Um, but uh, it starts. It starts fairly soon. As a matter of fact, um, one of the one of the major reasons uh, for this 1866 sort of uh, groundswell of Republican support is because of a a, a newly freed black vote. Um, and so they sort of start start very early, trying to exercise that right to vote. And over the course of of the period of Reconstruction, you end up with. Uh, around 2,000 black people holding office from the local to the federal level, including 16 in uh, the Senate and in the House. So um, we see, we see like major impacts here. Um, Something like 600 state legislators um, over the course of the reconstruction period uh, are black. Uh, And so it's, it's really a new Renaissance in the political life of black people. Now, in graduate school, my area of study was slavery. And in particular, I looked at the political ideology of slaves. And so I can assure you that this didn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Slaves are always shrewd political actors, and they always asserted their voice in whatever ways they could. And so it makes sense to me then that once they can really grasp a hold to that idea of freedom, that they they really charge forth wanting to chart a court for them uh chart a course mm-hmm. for themselves mm-hmm. so yeah it's pretty pretty quickly that's pretty inspiring too to <laughs> to think of people who newly are able to vote and who dive right into running for public office mm-hmm. some of them were the the group of folks especially in those first couple of years of reconstruction um some of the, some of the folks who end up in office had been free before the Civil War, so they mm-hmm. had been a part of the free Black population mm-hmm. who then fought in the Civil War. 
mm. and then went on to hold office. So for at least some of them, they had already been engaged in civic life. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, in the United States, um, before the Civil War, there were some areas where free Blacks, especially if you were a landholder, um, could vote in small numbers. Um, mm. They were sort of over time disenfranchised. But so there was sort of a history of a small minority Black vote even before the Civil War. So then after the Civil War, you definitely have some families who have already had a history of service, some who are educated, but then also you end up with ex-slaves in in, um, political office as well. So it really is a renaissance of of Black political life. Mm. So how long did that level of representation last? Because I think most of us know from our understanding of the Jim Crow era that there was a lot of voter suppression in that period. Yes, there was. So how long did this active era last? Um, So I would say definitely the first couple of years of Reconstruction, um, you really see this boom. And you see it sort of continue so long as there is a large federal presence Mm -hmm. um, in the South. But over time, uh, as um, the years wane on, you do start to see disenfranchisement. And so long as the federal troops are there, the disenfranchisement mostly happens through threats of violence and sort of intimidation. You begin to see sort of a backlash against this political renaissance amongst the newly freed population. And you begin to see the rise of the KKK and they are specifically targeting Republican politicians in the South. So mm-hmm. by the time you get into the 1870s, there's beginning to be more and more instances of um, attempts to disenfranchise. I think probably one of the most notable examples of this, uh, and likely the bloodiest, would be Colfax, Louisiana, in 1873. And basically what happened there is you had had Republican government who had been in control and there was a plot that folks heard about from white Democrats threatening to take over the government by force. And so a group of black Republican militiamen go to the courthouse to defend the government. And they find themselves surrounded by this group of white Democrats, uh, also included are members of the KKK and another supremacist organization called the White League. They surround the courthouse and storm the courthouse. The black militiamen are forced to surrender. And once they surrender, all told uh, approximately 150 uh, black militiamen were slaughtered in the courthouse. So, oh my gosh. yes, it is one of the bloodiest confrontations that we have on record from the Reconstruction era, but it is by no means the only attempt to um, curtail the Black vote through violence and intimidation. Wow. Yeah. That's appalling. It is, and it's absolutely appalling. And, you know, these are the same kinds of of acts of violence and threats of violence that had been used during the slave era 
um, to keep the population subjugated. Uh, and so here we see it again, you know, even as there are federal troops in the region, even as there is this federal program of reconstruction, you also see these acts of violence. And then, of course, you know, there was very little in terms of justice that happens after the fact, even when the federal troops are still there. This is still the period of reconstruction. Mm. As a matter of fact, um, we go on to get a court ruling that basically says that the federal government is unable to um, bring charges of hate crimes that involve state laws and state cases. So you even see a setback in terms of being able mm. to protect um, Black people from violence in the South. This is before we even get to the, the sort of official end of Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So it kind of shows you that the mm -hmm. Reconstruction period was full of promise, but it wasn't always successful. Right. Wow. And now voting itself over this period, would you say that by the 18... By the late 1870s, are you seeing fewer Black people in the South able to successfully vote? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Colfax is sort of the, the beginning of the end. Um, and definitely, you know, there's another disputed um, presidential election that happens um, between uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and Tilden. Um, mm -hmm. And Rutherford B. Mm -hmm. Hayes was the Republican candidate. And, you know, it's an interesting story because Tilden, the Democrat, actually won the popular vote, um, but he wasn't able to get the majority of um, electoral college seats he needed in order to be declared the winner because there were 19 Southern uh, electoral college seats that were disputed. Mm. And... So since there was no way to settle the dispute and there was therefore no winner of the Electoral College, uh, Congress decided to step in. And out of that, we get the Compromise of 1876, which basically brings Reconstruction to an end. So going into the Compromise of 1876, Tilden, the Democrat, is one vote shy of winning the Electoral College. Coming out of the Compromise of 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes is awarded the 19 disputed votes, and he ends up winning the election by one electoral college vote. Wow. Wow. So it's essentially, um, hey, we Republicans get the presidency, you Democrats get the end of Reconstruction. Exactly. Exactly. Right. He promises to remove the troops from the South and therefore allow democratic government to seize control in the South. And in return, the South promises to protect the black inhabitants and also not to dispute the election. So they only keep half that promise though. They don't mm. dispute the election, but also they don't protect the black population in the South. And we see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost as quickly as reconstruction ends, we begin to see uh, the black population losing rights that it had won uh, over the course of Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And for the next, I don't know, 80, 
90 years, you see very few Black people elected to Congress, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Very few. Um, Because they effectively, you know, disenfranchise through, again, through violence and intimidation, but then also through um, some laws and practices. Now, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution uh, specifically said that you couldn't deny someone the right to vote by race, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't charge them poll taxes so it was too expensive or create grandfather clauses or issue mm-hmm. literacy tests or just outright use violence and intimidation. And so Black people were almost wholesale disenfranchised after the end mm-hmm. of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you see a connection between that period of enfranchisement and then disenfranchisement and to the situation we have today in this country? Do you see the legacy? Yeah, I think we can definitely see the legacy, especially when we look at the the ways in which Reconstruction failed to um, secure the right to vote, the real and true right to vote for every citizen, right? This was mm-hmm. even during the period of Reconstruction and even through this new Black renaissance of political life, the, there were constant threats to this right of vote. It was only secured so long as the federal troops were around. But when they weren't around, um, there, was, there were rampant attempts at disenfranchisement. And so Reconstruction, in that sense, failed to secure this right to vote, failed to protect the the Black population from disenfranchisement. And so then we see rapidly the disenfranchisement of Black vote through other means, right? So again, those poll taxes, literacy, um, tests, etc. And I think that you can see sort of clear connections between some of the voter suppression tactics we see today and some of the things that experience, that were experienced back then. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. the closing of polling places in black and brown neighborhoods, you know, after reconstruction, um, polling mm-hmm. places were available in predominantly white neighborhoods, but not in the black and brown neighborhoods. And um, after um After the election of Barack Obama in particular, we see some shifting around of where where polling places are located, right? And we see a closure of polling places in black and brown neighborhoods and an increase in polling places in um, some white neighborhoods. Same thing with early voting centers. You know, Barack Obama in 2008 won the state of Indiana and after 2008, we see the state of Indiana closing early voting centers in black and brown neighborhoods and opening more in white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see sort of clear connections. Another another one is with this idea of poll tax. And, and so a poll tax is where basically you have to pay in order to vote. Well, poll mm-hmm. taxes themselves are illegal, but a way in which we see this crop up is, for instance, in Florida, um, in order for a felon to regain their right to vote, they have to pay off all of their state debts, right? So that means any costs that they incurred during prosecution or while they were imprisoned have to be paid back 
to the government before mm-hmm. they can get their right to vote back, right? So that's mm-hmm. paying for your right to vote. Another thing, which is kind of controversial, are these voter ID laws. You know, in some mm-hmm. states with strict voter ID laws, the cost of the ID is free. But then there's also other paperwork you need in order to apply for the D for the ID. For instance, a birth certificate. Well, in that state, you might have to pay for the birth certificate. So again, you end up with the situation where money has to be exchanged in order for you to be able to vote. So Mm -hmm. it's not as in your face as the poll tax, but it definitely has a similar effect. If you are a poor person, you know, barely making ends, ends meet, you have to decide on that meal versus paying to get to birth certificates. Um, Another interesting connection, I think, are with literacy tests. The point of of a literacy test was just to make it cumbersome for people to be able to vote, right? And the literacy tests would be, um, you know, things like having to recite the Declaration of Independence or something like that. You know, it would be it would be something kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That you wouldn't normally ask yeah, them to do questions about the state constitution. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in this last election, especially as as states who had never who had never offered absentee voting before, sort of introduced absentee ballots. We see these unnecessarily complicated absentee ballots in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, like the signature matching, it's up to an official someplace to decide whether or not your signature matches with the one on record. Now, I don't know about you, but my signature can look about five different ways, depending upon how quickly I'm signing something, right? Mm-hmm. So you're just yeah. sort of- You almost want to take a look and say, okay, that's the one I used. <laughs> right, exactly. You <laughs> have to stop and think yeah. about it. Like, which one did I use yeah. when I originally signed that form, right? right? So just kind of arbitrary right. or, or this, uh, you know, requirements to have, you know, an extra witness or to take the the absentee ballot that you've sealed and signed and then place it in a security envelope too, and then mm-hmm. sign that as well. Just all of these extra steps that make it cumbersome to vote. Right. And some of the steps were different in the primary versus the general. Right. So you might have had someone who carefully figured it all out for the primary and then thought it would be the same for the general. Right. And then it wasn't. <laughs> and there was something had changed. Yeah. Right. Great. Um, yeah. Another thing that happened, um, I think Georgia is probably our, our most well-known example, but all throughout the country, you've seen the purging of voting rolls, right? So if you've been mm-hmm. in, inactive or if there's some question about your address or, or if there's some question about whether or not you're alive, you would be purged from the voting rolls. Well, you don't get notified that you're purged. A lot of these same states mm-hmm. also don't allow same-day registration. So you could conceivably think that you're registered to vote because you registered a while ago and show up at the polls and you're no longer on the rolls. Mm-hmm. So all of these these hurdles, they you know, there are things that you could overcome, right? You could register again. You can make sure you read the directions and have someone watch you while you fill out your balance. You can make sure you've paid all your debts. Like these are hurdles that you can get over. But at the same time, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why are we placing hurdles in the way of citizens exercising their right to vote? Yeah. Right. What benefit could be commensurate 
to the difficulty exactly. that you are. Exactly. And I think more and more people are bringing to light that a lot of these things, the closure of polling places, you know, the the closure of early voting centers and poll taxes and literary, I'm sorry, and the absentee uh, ballot voting process, these are all things that disproportionately affect the black and brown vote. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, unfortunately, the season that we are in, um, with all of these challenges to our latest election, we also see these claims of voter fraud playing out in districts and in cities that are majority black. Right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then it, it, it calls the question again, why is it that every time we are trying to curtail um, the voting under the auspices of an idea of there being fraud, that it's the black and brown populations that are disproportionately affected. Again, if if we believe that citizens have the right to vote, why are we throwing up barriers in the way mm-hmm. of citizens exercising their right to vote? Right, right. Yeah, we've all heard these um, these stories of voter fraud, and of course, we're hearing a lot about that right now. But um, when it comes down to it, there's been remarkably little voter fraud in this country, given how many millions of people we have voting. So it's, um, yeah, you have to ask yourself, um, yeah, how do you, how do you weigh measures that keep people from voting against measures that are supposedly stopping fraud? You know, is the fraud rampant enough to make those preventative measures worth it? Mm -hmm. Um, or are they not, are they perhaps nowhere near? Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's an excellent question. I, um, I remember looking up the, the voter ID thing, just, you know, wondering where these these laws are coming from, well, the voter ID laws are supposed to protect us from, you know, non-citizens voting or like voter impersonation, that sort of thing. Um, And I saw a statistic that said, um, as of 2014, only 31 of these cases had ever been brought. So these cases of, of somehow impersonation Right, voter impersonation. Only 31 cases had been brought, and that's of an estimated 1 billion votes cast. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's that's nuts. It is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think for a lot of people who, especially if you live in a, in a part of the country where you need to drive to get around, a lot of people hear about a voter ID law and they're like, what's the big deal? Everybody has a driver's license. Like it's just, it's just taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think, what's the big deal? Shouldn't I have to show I am who I say I am? Mm-hmm. But um, you're not considering parts of the country where a big number of people don't drive. Right. You're not considering elderly people who aren't driving mm-hmm. um, or people who can't afford a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not thinking about the hurdles that those people might have to go through to acquire the, um, identification that they need. And it's just something that it's, it's easy kind of not to think about Mm -hmm. until, until you start to really examine an issue. Yeah, that's right. My, um, my grandfather, God rest his soul, he didn't have a birth certificate 
uh, he was born before you had to have a birth certificate. He was born in 1920 mm-hmm. and he didn't have a birth certificate. The way in which he established that he was a citizen of the United States was by um, um, signing up to fight in World War II. And so mm-hmm. he used his draft card and the um, the military ID that he got from fighting World War II as his evidence of citizenship. Uh, a lot of states have changed their ID laws such that how he established his citizenship in this country would not be accepted by by these current laws. He didn't have a birth certificate. There's nothing to get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one way in which you you can sort of see how there there are folks who may slip through the cracks. I remember reading a news story mm-hmm. um, several years ago about um, there being disputes about birth certificates issued near the border in Texas, and and how um, some folks were having their birth certificate invalidated, even though they were citizens born to citizens, but because they were born in these border hospitals, um, their birth certificates were called into question. Those are also Mm. folks who wouldn't be able to um, get an ID. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't, we don't really Mm -hmm. think about the, the other barriers, like the economic barriers, you know, in order to have a driver's license, you have to have a car. What if you don't have a car? If you're in rural America, your closest, you know, Department of Motor Vehicles could easily be 40 minutes away and you don't have a car, but you've got to get an ID. Mm-hmm. There's there's lots of ways mm-hmm. in which people can be prevented from getting a, an ID now that I think a lot of us don't think about. And mm-hmm. a lot of those barriers disproportionately affect black and brown people. All right. Now for the jump to the second part of today's episode on the Wilmington Coup. Hello again, Dee Dee. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for coming back to talk to us again. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. All right. So we are having a much quicker conversation this time um, uh, just about a week after the Capitol was attacked on January 6th. And in the wake of the Capitol attack, I kept hearing a lot of references to the Wilmington coup or the Wilmington insurrection. And I had been learning about that around the time I talked to you uh, for the podcast interview. And um, I thought it would be a really helpful addition to the segment that we did on voting during Reconstruction. So Didi has graciously uh, agreed to come back to tell us a little bit about Wilmington and to connect what happened in Wilmington with what just happened in Washington. Before we get started, I just wanted to note Um, because it might otherwise be a little confusing, that the political parties of that day in 1898 were sort of reversed from what we would think of today. 
So the Confederacy, of course, um, was dominated by the Democratic Party, and the Union was dominated by the Republican Party. And after the Civil War in the South, uh, Black people were normally in the Republican Party, in the, you know, quote, Union Party, essentially. And, um, but most of the white people in the South were Democrats. So uh, we're talking, when we talk about Wilmington, we're talking about white Southern Democrats and um, mostly black Republicans. So with that said, Didi, could you first give us an overview about what happened in Wilmington in 1898? Sure. So in 1898, there was a violent overthrow of a democratically elected government. And it had everything to do with white supremacy and fear of Negro rule, as they said in the day. So Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina, and it was home to a large and successful black population. Um, the black people in Wilmington had been able to make strides for themselves um, after the end of the Civil War, and especially during the Reconstruction period. Uh, a lot of the local businesses were run um, by African Americans. Um, there were uh, some African American politicians. There were some African American bankers and real estate agents. And so um, what you see then is sort of this, um, it's akin to what some, what some folks sometimes call like a black wall street kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, in Wilmington, it would have been market street. Mm -hmm. And so in 18, in the 1880s, there was a depression in the U S and it really hit the farming community, uh, very hard. And so, Although the vast majority of white folks in the South were part of the Democratic Party, especially after the end of Reconstruction, the Depression sort of um, created some fissures. And so what we had was we had the poor white farmers break off into another party called the People's Party or also sometimes called the Populist Party. Uh, while all of the wealthy white Southerners uh, remained in the Democrat Party. Mm -hmm. There weren't enough of them, though, to wield any real influence. And so they made a smart economic choice. They decided to align themselves with the Republican Party. And at that time, the Republican Party was the party that pretty much every um, Black Southerner belonged to. But also, uh, there was a significant number of uh, white people in that party as well, people who had relocated from the North or who had originally been against slavery, found a home in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So when the populace joined the Republican Party, they create the Fusionist Party. This party was extremely successful. They um, won most offices that they uh, competed in and nearly swept the elections of 1894 and 1896 in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So then what you had was a situation where there were some black elected officials, but a lot of white elected officials that were uh, somewhat sympathetic to the cause of black people. 
I don't want to, I don't want to overstate this though, because mm-hmm. this is still the South in the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, these are not, this is not um, like some kumbaya sort of moment mm-hmm. where everyone is suddenly enlightened. They were making an economic choice. They realized that by uh, aligning themselves with the Republican Party, that they would then have the numbers to win elections. And so they negotiated a small number of elected positions for uh, black people. They advocated for one person, one vote. So any, so that black men would be as represented as white men at the ballot box. But the fusionist party was overwhelmingly run by white people still. It was very, it was pragmatic versus idealistic. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, meanwhile, the Democrats are starting to see that they are slipping, the, their control of the South is slipping, and the position of Black people in the South is increasing while they suffer, and they were having none of it. So, when the elections of 1898 come around, they decide to use a new strategy to try to win. And what they decide to do is they decide to put race on the ballot. And they engage in a fierce white supremacist propaganda campaign that is designed to split white support away from the fusionist party and away from the Republican party towards the democratic party. Hmm. Um, And they decided to make Wilmington a major focus of that strategy. They issued a handbook detailing exactly what their plan was Um, And that plan really and truly was to divide the fusionists by stoking white fear. There was a, the major newspaper in the state was the News and Observer out of Raleigh. The owner of the News and Observer, uh, Josephus Daniels, was sort of the main architect of the propaganda campaign. And it was through his newspaper that they were able to do much of their work. Hmm. Um, in particular, cartoons. There's a couple of really famous ones that you see reprinted often. Um, there is the um, vampire bat with Negro rule printed across its wings hmm. um, that is hovering over and it has its claws aimed towards white women. Um, and it says the vampire hovers over North Carolina. Um, and then another famous cartoon is a, a large foot that has Negro written on the pants leg. Um, and that foot is over a white man. And uh, the caption for that one is how long will this last? Mm. Uh, so it's through propaganda like that, that they're able to reach even those that were illiterate. And at the end of the 19th century, literacy rates were low. As a matter of fact, in Wilmington, the black literacy rate was higher than the white literacy rate. Huh. Um, yeah, so these cartoons um, really played a major role in creating that division, that divide that they wanted to exploit in order to get Democrats in, into control. I never thought of that before. Yeah, politic- political cartoons become especially potent if you're trying to get to an audience that is like subliterate. Right, right, exactly. I never yeah, of that before. That's interesting. Yeah, so... Um, 
So there's this major statewide campaign in the newspapers. It's not just the cartoon. There's also uh, reporters who travel the state trying to find stories that make black people look the worst. And then they print those um, salacious headlines. So things like Negro control in Wilmington or um, a Negro insulted the postmistress because he did not get a letter. Sort of those kinds of headlines were were splashed across the newspapers. There were also people traveling on the campaign stump that were also bringing this white supremacist and racist message. Um, probably the most famous of them was Alfred Waddell, uh, who was called the Silver Tongue of the East, and he was a gifted orator. And he he gave the same speech sort of as he went, and he always ended it. Um, by saying, as a, this is just a paraphrase, but uh, that they would they would take back um, uh, rule in North Carolina, even if it meant that they would have to choke the Cape Fear River with corpses. Mm. Mm. Okay. So uh, they were not they were not hiding what they intended to do. You know, at these rallies, they would they would talk about being armed. Uh, they would talk about intimidating. They would name who they were after. They were after black people, but especially their white supporters. And um, Waddell would even say, you know, if something happens, the first person you should look at are the white supporters of these Negroes, because it is their fault um, that it has come to this. Mm. Right. So their thing was, you know, we are no longer going to be ruled by black people. Uh, there's going to be white rule again. Um, and I think you know, probably one of the interesting twists to this is that statistically speaking, there were not that many black elected officials. There were between 26 and 27 or so um, black elected officials in the entire state. And that's from the state level to the local level. Hmm. Um. But their problem, though, was with the white supporters in addition to their black constituency. And for Waddell, it was personal. Waddell had served in the Congress, and he was defeated by a man named um, Daniel Russell. And Russell became the fusionist governor of North Carolina uh, in 1896. And Waddell was unemployed. Uh, Russell ran on a platform... um, aggressively uh, reaching out to black people, uh, trying to humanize them and promising them his support, right? So here is Waddell, an out of work colonel from the Civil War, former congressman, and he's looking at his rival reaching out to black people and being led to the governor's office as a result. Mm-hmm. So for Waddell, it was personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that theme sort of repeated, you're looking at a lot of people who are sort of out of work or between work or their former Confederates who turn to violence in order to sort of get back what they consider their glory days or what they consider the days when, when their world was great. Mm-hmm. Okay. So election day comes um, November 8th, 1898. By the time you got there, the terror campaign had been so well organized that in Wilmington, the, the Republican ticket had withdrawn. Um, black people in Wilmington did not come out to the polls because there were folks patrolling the streets. Um, and these folks were called red shirts. 
Red Shirts were a paramilitary group of Democrats um, who were organized uh, to, through fear and intimidation, keep Black people and their white supporters from the polls. And they had been terrorizing North Carolina and Wilmington in particular for weeks and months before this election. So the Democrats were the only ones on the ballot, um, mm. but still were, they still were launching this um, terror campaign in the streets. Um, and so black people didn't show up to vote. Many people were intimidated and forced away from the polls. And so the Democratic ticket swept the uh, election. As a matter of fact, that was true throughout the whole state. They won every race that they were in. Huh. They, their uh, strategies met with success. Mm-hmm. Their strategy did meet with success. They successfully divided the fusionists. So this was the death of the fusionist party. Um, all of the white farmers who had left uh, the Democratic Party went back to the Democratic Party. Um, and after this, black people were disenfranchised. So the, the fusionist party was no more. Mm. Um, so that was November 8th. And so even though the Democrats won, they weren't happy with that. On November 10th, you get the riot and insurrection and the coup. Um, they start by going down to the only black paper in town um, called the Daily Record. Now, the editor of the Daily Record had published a column, um, an editorial that had um, had been used to justify, in some ways, what the Democrats were doing. This column was a response to um, a speech given by a white woman in Georgia where she advocated for the lynching of black men so that white women could be protected. Um, and so she was sort of playing up the idea that black men were out to rape white women. And so if you didn't lynch them, even if it meant you had to lynch them in the, into the thousands, then white women would never be safe. Mm. Uh, Alexander Manley responded to this in an editorial um, by making the argument that um, basically this, this idea that black men were raping white women en masse was fiction. And that oftentimes white women ended up in these li liaisons by choice. Well, for the white supremacists, this was, this was a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. um, they considered him threatening to white women, slandering white women. And on the campaign trail leading up to 1898, they republished this editorial. They cited this editorial. They called for him to be killed. Um, so it then is fitting that on November 10th, when they're get ready, getting ready to start their mass slaughter, they started at his newspaper. Now, Manley had fled. He knew that he was under threat. Uh, they burned his um, printing press to the ground. And then they turned their guns on the citizenry. We don't know how many people were killed. Um, there are no official records. And so many people so many black people left Wilmington that we probably will never know exactly how many died. Um, one historian has said that she's pretty sure she can say between 40 and 60 were killed, but there could have been a lot more. Um, I've also seen estimates into the 300 range of mm -hmm. people killed. We just simply do not know. What we do know is that they killed people for sport. They had a Gatling gun. And, which was an early machine gun, and they mowed people down. 
Hmm. While this sort of race riot was happening in the streets, a group of about 25 armed folks went down the city hall um, and they forced uh, all of the Republican and fusionist politicians still in office to resign on the spot. This wasn't by choice. This was by gunpoint. And so literally every non-democratic official resigned on the spot that day. And they were replaced by the people rioting in the streets. Mm. Yep. So, so far we've got riot and insurrection and now we're getting into coup, right? Now we're getting into coup. Right. So, and when folks look at, look up the, the Wilmington insurrection, you'll see it referred to as the Wilmington race riot, which is how I learned about it or the Wilmington insurrection or the Wilmington coup. They are all accurate. All three of those things happened in the same Mm -hmm. time period. Um, Mm. But it was absolutely an insurrection and absolutely a coup and probably the only successful one we've ever had on our soil. Yeah. Yeah. From that point forward, there was no more fusionist party. The state was ruled by these, the Southern democratic party. Um, And it it took until 1992 for the first black um, state elected official to be sworn in. Wow. Yeah. So when we say it, yeah, so when we say it was successful, it it really was. Um, So after the coup, they made sure to banish their opposition. And uh, so they they literally railroaded folks out. At gunpoint, they rounded up people they thought might be trouble and took them to the train station and told them to get on a train and never come back. And if they resisted, they'd be shot. Mm. Yeah, it's unreal. It's crazy to think of. Mm-hmm. It is. Man. Yeah, you don't actually think about what the term railroaded means until you hear a story like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite sim- quite simply just banished. So um, the effects on the population, the statistics of Wilmington were drastic. Wilmington had been a majority black town before this, and immediately after the race riot, it was a majority white town and it only continued to become more and more of a majority white town as the years went on. Um, the black businesses were crushed. I mean, truly there was, there was nothing left. So how do you have any idea how widely news of this event spread at that time? Like, was this well known? Yeah. People definitely knew that it happened. As a matter of fact, um, the Washington post Two weeks before the elections, um, wrote a, wrote about um, this impending insurrection. Hmm. Every it was it was it was wide knowledge. Even made it to the Washington Post wow. that this was going to happen before it even um, happened. Huh. Right before it even happened, they were sounding the alarm. Um, and afterwards, it was definitely known outside of the state. But what happened inside of the state is that it was it was hushed up. You know, history was rewritten. The the pro- the propaganda machine wasn't done. Um, they cast this as a victory. Uh, they laid blame at the feet of the fusionists. More cartoons come out. This time, these cartoons show black men with guns and white people in fear. Um, yeah, there's a victory campaign, and even even in North Carolina textbooks. Um, 
the full story of this insurrection still isn't really told. Yeah. Mm. So inside of the state, it was, it was kind of um, hushed up and really across the South, you know, this, this is sort of early 1898, but you get many more sort of similar instances of insurrection and riot happening all throughout the country. And um, especially by the time you get to 1919, there's, about 26 race riots uh, in black areas in this country. Um, so this is really sort of the beginning of that transition to the Jim, to Jim Crow. And as a matter of fact, that was, you know, priority number one of this, this new imposed government in Wilmington was to institute Jim Crow laws. So. Hmm. You know, one thing that stood out to me from what you said was you mentioned the um, newspaper out of Raleigh and how it worked so hard to advance the cause of the Southern Democrats um, and essentially whipped people up into a, into a rage against their political opponents and mm-hmm. couldn't help but think about today's media landscape yeah. <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, how some elements of it have uh, – have made hay whipping people up into anger and um, outrage at their opponents. Yes, it's true that as I was, as I was watching the events unfold on the sixth and I was watching in real time and and couldn't look away. um, I was struck by the, the parallels. I mean, this is definitely a situation where, there was um, a coordinated story, you know. There were there were people out on the stump making the case for an election that was rigged and was stolen, and people that had been done wrong. Um, and these stories were in print. And I think, you know, there's a lot more to be found out about um, the way in which this all worked. But I definitely see those echoes of um, using the the tools of the press or in, in our day and age, social media, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, well-placed rallies and speeches to sort of whip folks up into a frenzy. Um, you know, you have reports in, in 1898, you have reports of, of rallies held by uh, Alfred Waddell, and in attendance are these red shirts, who again are, are a paramilitary group uh, of Democrats. Uh, they're in attendance uh, with their firearms um, and, you know, they're being given instruction on what's expected of them, how they're, how they're expected to protect the vote and how they're expected to protect white women um, and how they how they have to keep these other folks from the polls. I mean, it, you know, mm-hmm. between the newspapers and these rallies, that was really the main way in which they were keeping everyone riled up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Priming the pump. Yes, absolutely. Priming the pump. Um, And Waddell, you know, he didn't just stay, you know, up on the speaker's podium. He got down, he was on the streets. Um, And he, and he actually becomes the mayor of Wilmington. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. Now you, you mentioned, you know, watching, the Capitol being attacked on the 6th, watching it on the news. Um, you know, was this situation 
that we're talking about here in Wilmington? Was this sort of at the forefront of your mind? Have you have you been drawing parallels in your own mind between what's happening today and what happened then? You know, I think the the biggest parallel because there there are some major and significant differences, of course, mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. what happened in Wilmington and what happened at the Capitol. But I think the theme that I keep returning to is the strategy to divide and conquer, Mm -hmm. right? That there is something fundamentally wrong with um, people winning elections through forming coalitions and increasing voter turnout, which is exactly the way that the, the Fusionist Party won elections. They formed a coalition, they boosted their turnout, and they were successful. They had a message that people wanted to hear. They moved their constituency to the polls, and they won. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I see a similar thing that happened with our last election. You know, alliances were made. Um, Could almost got their I mean, voters out. I'm just, I'm also thinking about Georgia and the runoff election. Yeah. You know, these coalitions were made. People turned out the vote. This was democracy in action. And and when the Fusionist Party comes to power in the 1890s, you know, I don't think very many people could have expected that a party like this would emerge out of post in the post reconstruction South, but it did. And they were seeing to the needs of their constituents, and their constituents were responding. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so then the response to that was to divide, to break that coalition apart. Mm-hmm. Instead of embracing that coming together and embracing that democratic spirit, the response was to try to break it apart. Mm-hmm. And I think that is uh, the thing that, that stood out to me is how incredibly divided our already divided nation became in the weeks after our election. As people got further and further into their camps, um, you know, uh, rhetoric getting hotter and hotter, and people exploiting those divides. I mean, you know, Wilmington and on the ca- and the Capitol insurrection. I think these are warning signs to us all that when you exploit the divides, uh, especially when those divides get exploited along the lines of race, whether you are being explicit about it or not, um, you're going to get major clashes that, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that um, there is that undercurrent always lurking um so it's 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 the appealing to our our worst angels that that leads us to moments like these right and I, and i just want to say it's not it's not to say that every person who um who found themselves agreeing with the stop the steal campaign it's not to say that every one of those folks was trying to stoke racism mm-hmm. right but the paramilitary forces definitely seem to have that angle. 
you know? And I think a similar thing could be said about Wilmington. Not everyone that supported the outcome supported the violence, but they were, they were whipped up and they were concerned about this idea that they were going to lose something, that something was being taken from them. And they had been convinced that it had to be taken back one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of another similar um, parallel because what we're talking about is, you know, several hundred uh, red shirts terrorizing Wilmington. You know, we're not talking about all of the thousands of the state. And the same thing with the, with the Capitol insurrection. We're talking about however many hundreds actually decided that they were going to storm the Capitol and try to take it and, and do whatever crazy things they were going to do to our elected officials. But once you unleash this propaganda, it can, propaganda can work on people even if, even when they least expect it. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Right. I think in both of these situations, too, you have individuals who are using an angry public mm-hmm. to achieve their own ends. Yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of undercurrents in, in North Carolina and in the South in general, um, sort of unfinished business from the Reconstruction era that lead to things like Wilmington. But there's also that real personal aspect of you know, Waddell just really had it out for his opponent that defeated him, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it was, it was a way in which these things could kind of coalesce. Um, and, and certainly, certainly we know that president Trump doesn't think that he was defeated in the previous election. Mm-hmm. And he instead thinks that the election was, was stolen from him. And so a lot of this overheated rhetoric that we've had has been him forcefully making the case that the election was taken from him, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. It's also heavy. It the, is. Uh, the, uh, the point that you made regarding this sort of kicking off what would later become a series of um, riots, series of, Attacks. Insurrections and uprisings, yeah. Attacks. Right. You know, that kind of that idea makes you nervous right now. <laughs> it does. Especially it really does. Especially with so many states concerned about their own capitals, mm-hmm. about um, protests or attacks that you could see across the country, not just in Washington. It's yeah, it's um we're living we're living in a pretty nerve wracking time. We are. And you know, I, I think at this point, we just hope and pray that we aren't going to see this full thing play out um, and that we aren't going to see, as the FBI is warning, we aren't going to see all 50 capitals targeted. Um, but people are definitely angry and they didn't stop being angry. You know, um, we keep getting these reports of of people still organizing and social media on encrypted apps, sort of where they think that they're out of the public eye. Um, people still planning violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I don't think this is the majority of, of people who have their qualms about the election. I don't think the majority of people are plotting, you know, um, sedition and insurrection against the United States. But there certainly is a significant element that is. 
Um, and we need to be concerned that this overheated rhetoric that we are still hearing from our elected officials is being taken by some people as their marching orders, or at least a blessing for them to do what, what they think they are supposed to do. And there's all sorts of, you know, the rumor mill is full of, of questions about, well, was this an inside job? Did they have help? I think time will tell whether or not that is true. Certainly in Wilmington, um, this was, you know, the political elite of the uh, Southern Democrat Party and also the wealthy businessmen of North Carolina that were all working together to make this happen. So let's hope that that that's not the case here mm-hmm. for us with our capital insurrection. Yeah. I feel like um, so many Americans, maybe it's because we have such an old democracy in, in the scheme of things. Um, I think that so many Americans have just become convinced that our system is invincible and we take it for granted and it's almost impossible to think that it could be at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't think that the sky is falling, but I do think that we need to stop assuming that we're invincible. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's not healthy to think you're invincible. I mean, it's not healthy for a young person to take, stupid, crazy risks because they think that they're going to live forever. It's not healthy for a person to um, indulge in sin because they think that their, <laughs> their soul is, uh, is safe no matter what they do, you know, that they take for granted um, their eternal life, essentially. Um, Neither of those are healthy, <laughs> and nor is it healthy for us just to assume that nothing can happen to our democracy. I think we need to right. we need to behave responsibly toward it and aim to conserve its health <laughs> if yeah. we want it to remain healthy. And I wish that's what people would take out of it. So I don't I don't think that people should be panicked that everything's going to fall apart tomorrow. But I I do think this should serve as a wake-up call that if we want it to be healthy, we need to work to make it healthy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, we've we've already heard that that uh, oft-quoted phrase, I think often attributed to Benjamin Franklin, where asked, you know, do we have a monarchy or do we have a republic? And he says, a republic, if we can keep it. You know, I think people people quote that so often or you hear that or people make drinking games around how often mm-hmm. they're going to hear it or whatever. But there, there's, there's some serious truth to that. This is mm-hmm. not magic. Um, we have this feeling of American exceptionalism. And while this is a great nation, it's not, it's not an exception. There's no magic around this. You have to work for the Republic, if you want to keep it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are so many forces and there are so many things, both foreign and domestic, that are oftentimes trying to tear it apart. And 
however, you know, wherever it is that you land on the political spectrum, whatever it is you think about whether or not this election was stolen, uh, according to our, our democratic process, this election is over and there's a clear winner. Mm -hmm. Um, And challenges were made through all the legal avenues and they all failed. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to keep our Republic, then we have to keep the most important aspect of it, which is that when losers lose, they lose graciously and there's a peaceful transition to the winner. Mm-hmm. We have, we just have to, mm-hmm. whatever questions you have about voting irregularities work to change it. If you think that that's a problem, but also recognize that if your changes impinge upon the rights of other people, that there's going to be some challenges and that's the way this Republic works. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we have to work out our differences in the proper arenas and we have to be gracious enough to accept when we have lost. Mm-hmm. I think those are some wise words to end on, Dee Dee. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I think um, this is an important thing to be thinking about at this moment. And goodness knows we have a lot to think about right now. <laughs> we do. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time, Dee Dee. Absolutely. And thank you for having me back again. Absolutely. I look forward to talking to you some more. Yes. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dee Dee Miller. To learn more about Dee Dee, please follow her on Instagram at Dee Dee's Journey. To learn more about Catholics United for Black Lives, please check out their website, www.cubl.org and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at C-U-B-L-O-R-G. You can find links to all of those accounts in the show notes. Our next episode, which should be out later this week, will feature a conversation with Dr. Michael Toll, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Mount St. Mary's University. Dr. Toll and I will be discussing this moment of transition from one presidential administration to the next. The end of the Trump administration, including the Capitol insurrection and the president's second impeachment, and the beginning of the Biden administration, including where our parties, our politics, and our country might be heading next. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, You'll share it and leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, Julie V. Walsh, and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.